0: mind. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice. And we've done that. Thank you. Thank you for leading us musicians, worship leaders, and that. And so Jesus, when we say we want to be glad and rejoice in it, it's because you made it this day. So be the one high and lifted up and no one else. Amen. I know it's kind of taboo, it's not really acceptable, air your, your marital laundry out, but just give, just give me this once. I, uh, Melanie is a, a loyal patron of Costco, fine with me. I've grown accustomed now to having that purple shampoo bottle, Kirkland, in the shower. I know, it's, that's the shampoo bottle. It comes from years of baggage. You see, I grew up with a mother. If you were to go today to my mom's house in Roseburg, just outside of Roseburg, Oregon, and you were to stay overnight as a guest, you'd be welcome there, of course, but to use the shower, to use the rest of the bathroom and, and the shower to get cleaned up, you would find some 17 bottles of items in the shower. And you've got to figure out which one you're supposed to. I mean, they are conditioners and body washes and hair shampoos. And I grew up with a mom that just stocked the shower with every known kind of Shower item, and I had to figure it out. I, I, don't want a shampoo that gives extra shine or extra volume or extra curls or fixes split ends. I don't, I don't want that. I want shampoo. So you got to read these things, figure out, and the shampoo bottles and the conditioner bottles and the and the body wash—they all sound the same. You got to read the whole thing. All of them are, well that was my life I, even in even in hotels today you go to hotels i know there's three bottles that sit next to the sink and there's one that's a uh, lotion one that's a conditioner and one that's a shampoo uh, for the life of me i've got to read these it takes me 10 minutes to read these where is it that says shampoo i just want to make sure i'm taking putting the right thing in my hair it's, i don't know why they can't just say shampoo well so melanie I don't know what happened, but she didn't go to Costco, and she—I'm—I'm she, I'm sitting there in the shower, going, "Where in the world is my purple bottle shampoo?" So then I'm reading it. It's Pantene Pro-V Daily Moisture Renewal. So far, there's nothing on this bottle in big print that tells me it's my shampoo, right? There's—there's there's no harsh stripping, no colorants. All right, hydration. Everything sounds like it's a lotion, and I. She, down under the tiny fine print the very bottom you find the little word shampoo (laughs) why can't you just put it across the front of the bottle this bottle contains shampoo well that's our dirty laundry purple bottle's out apparently Sometimes we wonder, hey, is this for me or is this for someone else? I, I just want to know what's, what's for me. Well, good news, you don't have to guess. Today's sermon is for you. You don't have to wonder, where's my shampoo? Where's my... Sh-? This is for you. But this is how we do it. This is, this is how we do it. We read the prophets. We're going through a series, right? We've got a couple more weeks. We'll finish up the prophets. We read the prophets... They call it preacher syndrome. You read it as a preacher thinking, what can I get out of this to preach to other people? You read it as a, they call it parent syndrome. What am I reading in this to tell my children? Or it's a spouse syndrome. What can I read in this to tell my spouse? And we're constantly reading the prophets and picking them apart as if the, all of the prophets don't apply to us. I've got to find the message that's for me. Breaking news. Every last prophet is for you, not the world for you. We read, especially the apocalyptic prophets, Daniel and Revelation, as if there's some sort of message to the world. And we're just the, the third person observer. Not so. You, you are the object of the prophet's message. It reminds me of a friend of mine, a Recording artist Scott Michael Bennett. He 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 shares this story of uh, of going to a Walmart and noticing outside the Walmart. He actually shares a picture of it. I'll put it on the screen. You can't much see it, but at the top of that pole is a tattered, torn flag. Well, he's a bit off by that. He thinks, "Wow, this is this shouldn't be." We should have a flag. Old Glory should fly, without its rips and its tears, and 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 actually mount it to the pole, and not just hanging on by a thread. And so he said, you know, his first knee jerk reaction was to publish it on social media, make a statement about the corporation Walmart and how they don't care for Old Glory. They're not political and or or unsupportive politically, and and uh, not patriotic. He said I, he imagined he would post this on some sort of social media and there would be a little following that would rise up in comments and likes and people would say, yeah, let's boycott Walmart, I didn't like Walmart anyway, that's just telling about the corporation. And everybody would begin to point the fingers at Walmart and then he just said, I had to ask the question, when do I stop pointing the finger and do something about it? So he walks into the Walmart, goes to the aisle where they sell flags, purchases with his own money a flag, takes it to the customer service desk and says, listen, on my dime, would you be willing to replace the flag out front? And the next day, you won't tell in the pictures I'm showing you much difference, but you can see old glory flies. He said the next day he passed by and there was his flag up the pole. And he concludes, when are we going to stop complaining and start being the change. Well, that's exactly what John the Baptist would like to ask. We're going to John the Baptist, the great prophet of the New Testament. His voice silences 400 years or breaks 400 years of prophetic silence. The people that have been used to being, having prophets raised up have, have not heard anything for 400 years. Generation after generation has gone to the grave not hearing a prophet, person, and then John the Baptist. Probably, of all the New Testament, or the the individuals or characters in the Gospels, I should say, aside from Jesus, John the Baptist is the most theologically significant. He plays the fulfillment of the return of Elijah, this prophecy that, that God would raise up a prophet. Introducing Jesus. An angel announces his birth. His father, a priest, is incredulous. says, <laughs> you kidding? And not with me in the missus. Not at our age. And the angel says, you forget who I am and where I come from. I just left the throne of God. And by the way, you're not going to be able to say a word until he's born now. Nine months of silence in John's house. Well, when John meets Jesus, the first time they meet is womb to womb. Mamas are coming together, and John the Baptist leaps in the womb in recognition of Jesus still in the womb. That's- I tell you what, you can't read the story of John the Baptist and get very far with the argument of abortion. You can't go very far with a baby in the womb recognizing his Savior. Well, John grows as a young adult. He's then, he, that God then draws him away. He, he grows up in obscurity, in a desert, in a wilderness. It's poetic, though. He he grows up physically in a wilderness and then is called to work in a wilderness. Luke chapter 3. Got your Bibles? Of course you do. Luke chapter 3. Forgot your Bible because you were late eating breakfast. Fair enough. There is a Bible in the pew back in front of you. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Luke is, is now going to quote Isaiah, verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. This is from Isaiah chapter 40, my personally my favorite chapter in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, Luke uh, quotes, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. What happens, John the Baptist is raised in a wilderness. He's raised in a quiet countryside setting. And then he's called, Isaiah said, he's called to preach in the wilderness. But this is not the wilderness. There's a nuance here of expression that compares the wilderness, the, the desert area where he grew up, to what he's called to preach in. He is now called to preach in a, in a desert, in a wilderness of spirituality. He's preaching along the banks of the Jordan. But he's in a spiritual wilderness. Politically and spiritually, there's emptiness and confusion. You see, this has more to do with us today than we have given it credit. This has more to do today with the context and and the unprecedented repetition of natural disasters and wars and rumors of wars. We live in a spiritually void culture, context. So there's urgency. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. That's what you do when you're urgent. You call. You cry out. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. This is what they did for kings. This was just the context. There would be a road crew that would go before the kings, raising up the low places, lowering the high places, straightening out the crooked places. Why? Because the king had to travel not only in comfort, but with expediency. And so they had to make it as straight as possible so the king could get from point A to point B as swiftly and as safely as possible. And that's what John the Baptist was called to do, to announce the arrival of a king by by spiritually awakening the hearts of people so that the king could advance his kingdom as quickly, as swiftly as possible in their hearts. So John the Baptist's call is that, to raise up. And then verse 6 says, and all people will see God's salvation. John the Baptist is working in a figurative wilderness, one where he's preaching in a culture that is lost, confused, and empty politically and spiritually. Things were not well in their community. You've got the Romans, you've got the Jews, you've got the zealots that are causing problems in both camps. John the Baptist begins to speak. And we know he's crying for the kingdom of heaven, and there was something different about him because even the Roman soldiers who listened to him were not concerned with him. Now, they had, they had plenty to be concerned about with Zellus standing up and crying against the Romans, but there was something different. There was hope. The Romans knew it. There was an emptiness, confusion, politically and spiritually. Oh, John the Baptist, the world he lived in, the world he worked in, it's not very different than what we see outside. A wilderness, a wilderness of spirituality. What was his message? His message was an invitation for people to repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. Turn from your sins because eternity is before us. The king is coming. Be ready to meet him. Luke chapter 3 and verse 7. And John said to the crowds coming up to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers. Commentators and theologians point out that line, you brood of vipers, you family of snakes, as being the strongest negative title used in Scripture. You can't get worse than that. He calls them out. You brood, you you family of snakes. Jesus must have been in the crowd that day because later Jesus uses that term. Heard it from his cousin John. What was so serious that John would use such a a title to the people that were listening? What was it that was so serious that John was willing to use the strongest negative label ever? What was it? Verse 8. Here's his appeal. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That was his appeal. You must repent and to grab their attention and to place them in context where they really were. Calls them out. You brood of snakes, you must repent. That was his message, an appeal for repentance. What does he say? What does he compare that with? What is repentance, by the way? Repentance is a personal action. It's not something we do as a group. We don't, we don't corporately come together and vote a repentance it's an individual it's a heart thing and that's why he he contrasts that verse 8 produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin, don't even go there, to begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. What he begins to, to, to make a distinction of is this idea that we are safe because we're in some sort of community. We're part of a school, a campus, a church. We're safe because of that. No, he says, you must work an indi- it must be an individual private work. And what was it that John was calling them to do anyway? To be baptized, which is a private work. You can't, you can't do that as a group. Hey, you, we'll all be baptized together and, or you be baptized for all of it. No, it doesn't work. It's an individual decision. So here, John the Baptist begins to sever this, this connection. Hey, chop, chop, chop. You can't just rely on your family anymore. You can't rely on your church or the community because you're part of Abraham's family. You must make personal Work for repentance. Oh, another prophet, not on the banks of the Jordan, but on the shores of this country, spoke up. And she wrote, are we hoping to see the whole church revived? Of course. Well, that time will never come. Some of us are sitting around thinking, hey, good on you, Pastor Leandro. As soon as 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 the whole church gets involved in Bible studies, I'll I'll probably be be involved in that. That time will never come. No, when people, start, when people start reaching out to their community, when people start evangelizing, then, then I'll go with the wave. That time will never come. What's her point? We must enter upon the work individually. Today, you choose. And then, whoo, this line for those of us that sit on too many committees, we must pray more and talk less. Quit quit the talk. Quit the talk. Oh, we like to talk, though. We like to talk about everybody else. It's the preacher syndrome. Hey, what what does this passage say to everybody else? It's the parent syndrome, the teacher syndrome, or whatever we want to call it, where we read it and we point our bony little fingers at the world around us. Teachers, pastors, conference presidents, politicians, family members, other contemporaries, But we know, we know that three fingers are pointing back at us. Are we hoping to see the whole church revived? How wonderful that would be. But that time will never come, beloved. Instead, what should happen? We must enter the work individually. We must pray more and talk less. We have to own up in that intimate work of repentance. It's just me. Just me and the lamb, said John the Baptist. Just you and the lamb, that's all. There's two players. You want to make the world a better place? Repent. You. Repent. Yeah, I'll, tell, I'll show it to you right here from every gospel writer on the story of John points it out. Matthew chapter 3. John's own testimony. When he met Jesus, Jesus came to be baptized. And he met him there in the Jordan. And John looks at Jesus and said, are you kidding me? I can't baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. You come to me? Jesus said, I need you to do this to fulfill prophecy, but your point is well made. John says, I can't just do do this symbolic function. My heart is the one that needs to be baptized. I need repentance. The gospel writer John, telling the account, tells of John the Baptist, John chapter 3 and verse 30, John declares to the people around him, this lamb, this one must become greater and I must become less. That's the personal decision. The two are not mutually exclusive. That is, that is one doesn't happen and the other doesn't, need to ha- doesn't happen. They are, they, are, they are simultaneously. When Jesus becomes greater in my life, I become less. What is John saying through all of this? He's saying what he's preaching that the work is individual, not corporate. It's me and my heart with God. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8 he says, We must produce these fruits keeping with repentance. We must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What is it that that leads us to repentance? Well, great question. Paul picks up the theme of repentance in Romans chapter 2. You're going to keep your finger right there, but Romans chapter 2. I'll put it on the screen for you. Romans chapter 2, verse (laughs) 4. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. It's the goodness of God. You want to know what John the Baptist was preaching on the banks of the Jordan? I know he was preaching the goodness of God. Why? Because he was calling people to repentance. And that's how Paul, John the Baptist, understood you get there. So he's preaching about the goodness of God. Paul says, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. What sins, now we would just sit back, what sins is it that John, that, well, John the Baptist is appealing to us to have repentance for? We could say what sins are, is Paul calling us to? We would assume they would agree. They're both getting their their directive from God. Romans chapter 1, which is the chapter right before Romans chapter 2, that says the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Paul lists the sins. He said, hey, I'll make a list for you. Sure enough. Hey, here it is. We wish he hadn't. He said, yeah, it's all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, covetousness, envy, murder, which is hatred, strife, deceit. That's overstating something or understating something, anything meant to deceive. They are whispers, little gossipers, backbiters, proud, boasters, disobedient to your parents, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Thank you, Paul. That's enough from you because the sins that we want to talk about are really corporate issues. We want to talk about a godless America and how the conference president or the principal or the pastor or the teacher or the parent or the other person, we want to talk about everybody else. But all of these are heart sins. They're deep in our own hearts. And God is saying, hey, I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. And John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan River is crying out what we need is not a corporate committee to deal with an issue we need a personal private repentance with the lamb of god that takes away the sins of everyone in the world and so john the baptist pointed these aren't the popular sins we don't we don't do church discipline for envy backbiting These are the sins, though, that Paul and John say, these are the sins that need to be fixed, need to be repented of, need to be purged of. We prefer issues, not sins. Hey, let's deal with issues. We like to skip the inner life. We like to be exempt. So then John the Baptist, back in Luke, he's saying, hey, look, I want you to... I want you to talk about, I want you to know about the judgment. There's coming a day when there will be no more days. There will become a day when decisions have been made and you will have to face a judgment. Who warned you? And he, he writes it like this. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? This is his talk of the judgment. The ax is already laid. The root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit. See how he's catching that? Produce repentance. Now he's talking about produce good fruit. What is the good fruit? It's the repentance. Produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. He's talking about the end of the age. John the Baptist is apocalyptic. He's talking about a kingdom that's coming to be set up that will never be destroyed and that will set all others aside. His is the advent message of a coming Jesus. So beloved, what should you be concerned about? What should occupy our dearest attentions? Personal, private fruit of repentance. That's what fixes the world. Not a vote in this building or on this campus or in any other building on this planet. But what happens in your heart is what makes the world a better place. The people heard John. They heard what he was saying. And so they cried back. They said, what do we do? The Roman soldiers asked, what do we do? Why? Because John was not talking about Roman politics. He was talking about a Roman heart. The tax collectors cried out, what do we do? Why? Because John was not talking about the politics of a tax collector. He was talking about a tax collector's heart. The scribes and the Pharisees cried out, what do we do? because he was talking about their hearts and the crowd, it says, cried out, what should we do? Because they understood John's message. It was personal, it was private, it was intimate. You must meet the lamb. And you know what? (laughs) Whoo! Whoo! What happened in hell when people began to ask, what must I do? What does this mean to me? When the finger stopped being pointed at the community and the organizations and everybody else, and the question started being asked of their own individual hearts, what happened in hell? We have a glimpse from the book, Desire of Ages, commentating on this specific narrative. This isn't just a random quote. Satan feared for the safety of his kingdom when individuals began to repent and become right with God. The sinfulness of sin was revealed in such a manner that men trembled. You want to scare Satan? You want to destroy his kingdom? Then personally, privately, work the work of repentance with God. Oh, I hear it too much. I hear the preacher syndrome. Hey, this is good. I wish our our conference president, I wish our union, I wish our division, I wish this campus would read this passage. Then they would be convicted about what I, they need to be convicted about. And there is a time and a place for corporate conversation. There is a time and a place. But the most urgent of our needs, beloved, what, what causes Satan to fear for the safety of his kingdom is not a committee vote, but a heart repentant. Well, what do you all have to be repentant about? I'm sorry, did I need to bring up Romans chapter 1 again? Did you not read the list? I know you recognized them. I recognized them. Satan feared for the safety of his kingdom. You want a better church? Repent with your heart. You want a better school? Repent with your heart. You want... the the United States to return to a a kingdom of godly principles, then you repent with your heart. You make a better church. You make a better school. You make a better country. You make a better world. You cause Satan to fear for the safety of his kingdom when one of us is finally willing to be honest with Jesus. Jesus, I want you to take it. I want you to take all of it. Well, what happened at the end? John the Baptist is beheaded by his friend. This Bible actually points out that King Herod had regular conversations and consultations with John the Baptist. Even Herod the king wanted to know what was right. But in the end, Herod made a decision because of peer pressure that he would not repent with his heart. Because of a girl that danced seductively, because of his sexual immorality, he decided to hold the fort with his sin. And that cost John the Baptist his head. Yeah, let's pick up the story Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus finds out about it. John the Baptist is beheaded. John's disciples, his head is on a platter and it's given to the girl. The girl gives it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus, verse 12. They went and told Jesus. Why? Because they knew Jesus cared. They'd had an interaction with with Jesus and John before, while John was in the prison, and they knew Jesus wanted to know. It was his his family. So they go tell Jesus. What does Jesus do? All right, what does Jesus do? Verse 13, he does what many of us would do when we lose a friend. He withdraws to us to a private place. John 14, verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. He needed some time. But hearing of this, the crowds followed him and eventually they showed up on, on foot. So it took them a little longer, but Jesus landed and saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. So the, he, he, he heals them. And then what happens? When Jesus landed and saw this crowd, he heals their sick. They, they, they do this little service. Jesus is teaching them and they get hungry. And the disciples say, "We've got to send them away." And Jesus says, "No, let's not send them away. Let's uh, let's have a dinner together. Let's have a picnic out here. How are we going to do that? We don't have we don't have hardly any. Let's have a picnic. Have everybody sit down. So they sit in these groups. Exactly what you and I would do after after we lose a friend. We would have some time alone, and then we would have a service." where there was some hope that was shared. And then we would follow the service with a meal. And that's what Jesus does here. He follows the service with a meal. It sounds like he's a little indifferent, a little aloof to the fact that he lost his friend, his forerunner. Is is, is it just that he was on a hillside picnic with a bunch of other people? Hey, the kingdom must move on. We can't... Hold that line for just a moment, and I want to share with you a couple of lines from the from the book, Desire of Ages, prophetic work. Gladly would he have, that is Jesus, delivered his faithful servant. But for the sake of thousands, and by the way, you and I are part of those thousands who in after the years must pass from prison, that is suffering, to death, John was to drink the cup of martyrdom for our sake, for our encouragement, and of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is the most weighty. You want a promotion? Here it is. The most weighty trust and the highest honor. God took John the Baptist and said, John, I don't have many like you, but I do have you. You, with your heart, you decreased and let, allowed me to increase in you. When I came to you, you were the one that wanted to be baptized, even though you could have just taken this opportunity. I get to baptize Jesus. No, John knew that his heart needed it. Jesus says, I can trust you with this responsibility. I'm going to let you go through this suffering because you will change the hearts and your story will be told a thousand times through history. John actually says, John 3 and verse 29, the friend who attends the bridegroom awaits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And then John says, the joy is mine. And is now complete. I, I, I am a follower of this bridegroom, or of this bride. I, I am his. And I just get to hear the bridegroom speak to his bride. That's enough for me. Oh, f- those are hard words for those of us that want to sail to heaven on smooth seas. John the Baptist's story is what it is because of the prison and the platter. Meanwhile, back on the hill, Jesus is at the picnic. A picnic? That's not how hell saw it. Let me read for you what Andrew's study Bible commentates on this particular passage. It's understood by many other scholars, though, but I I like how they write it. The miracle of feeding the the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. Arguably, then, it is therefore possibly the most important miracle that Jesus performed, the feeding of the 5,000. And what more? It anticipates the great eschatological banquet at the end of the age. That wasn't just... A little shenanigan, a little picnic on the hillside. Jesus is celebrating the life of one who had given his heart wholly to him and was willing to die for calling people to repentance, to meet the lamb. And Jesus says, let's have a a banquet. And Satan and his fallen host, witnessing this banquet on the hillside, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This this is this is sounding all too familiar. Jesus providing supernatural food for thousands of people, at the following the death of one of his saints. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is this is celebrating the kingdom of heaven. And hell knew that that hillside picnic was not just a little show of bread and fish. This was a statement to the fallen and the unfallen universe that Jesus had set up his kingdom and he was already beginning to celebrate. How could he do it? Because of the life and testimony and legacy of one John the Baptist. John John the Baptist's life and and preaching is for you. What are you going to do with his word? Is Jesus your everything? Your everything? Or are you still pointing your bony finger at everyone else that if they would get their stuff together, the world would be right? Right? No, it's not the rest of the world. It's your sin-filled, prideful, boastful, backbiting, unrighteous, sexually immoral heart. That's where it's at. And us changing our hearts or allowing God to change our hearts. Us coming with fruits of repentance. Jesus, I'm all yours. All. I decrease, you increase. I need to be baptized by you. Jesus, I am all yours. That will cause Satan to fear for his kingdom. You want to destroy what is wrong in the world? Make your heart right with Jesus. I want to introduce you to a young lady. She's 25 years old name's Brooklyn she lives here in Colorado I've never met her I really would like to I'd love to have 15 minutes with this girl just to talk to her and hear her share I don't feel it's right to even try to get 15 minutes with her because she's got days to live it seems like 15 minutes with me she's got better things to do with her days when I say days, I literally mean periods of 24 hours. Back at the beginning of Feb- February, she shared her heart. <clears throat> She's kind of become a sensation on social media. She shared her heart. She said, If I know my body, I would give myself four more weeks. Well, what, 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 what's going on? What's going on? She's, she said, Well, let me tell you about I've got a garden variety of diseases, she writes. One of my core maladies is hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, HEDS. It's a disorder of connective tissue. She said, my tissue is too stretchy, so I'm literally falling apart. EDS is not terminal, though. So it's not, it, it's, it's not that that's bringing the, the, the few days left. She has comorbid, co, comorbidities. Accompanying her EDS... She has a dysfunction of her nervous system, her immune system, and her digestive tract are so severe, those dysfunctions, that her body can no longer cope, and it's just falling apart. She said, said, my body is like a busy secretary that can't multitask, except I can't fire my body, like someone may be able to do to a secretary. So she begins to write, not every day, but when she can. She begins to write and share on social media her journey, her journey, I got it from several friends, several people sent it and said, Hey, have you have you heard her story? So I read her story. This is how she introduces herself. She says, My goal is to highlight God's strength in our weaknesses, his faithfulness in our suffering, our future hope in Jesus beyond death. He alone is eternally worthy. I'm just temporarily sick. That was at the beginning of February where she said, I think I have about four weeks left. She's now on a hospice. And on February 14, she writes, shares. She said, I, I've been taken off all nutrition except for the, for the TPN that's pumped through her IV. My stomach and intestines can't digest and absorb food. She said i've had it a short time before but this time it's permanent and then she's a bit sarcastic she's got a sense of humor she said that means i'm permanently fasting for the rest of my life i'm gluten-free dairy-free nutrition-free it's my new fad and then she writes this paragraph she doesn't know what day she'll wake up and not be able to say anything more. But she writes this paragraph, and I want to close with this. The musicians will come up in just a second, but I just want you to hear. I want you to hear a girl that's 25 years old, days left. The only thing I like about being malnourished, she writes, is how it makes me rely on Jesus. Jesus says he's the bread of life in John 6. Without actual bread, I'm pushed to rely on God's promise of being my spiritual sustenance. He always provides exactly what I need. It may not be what I think I need, like the ability to eat. I crave the ability to eat and to taste the foods, but that's not what I'm getting. But he always gives me what I need. For example, he gives me a lesson in faith a special moment with him, or time to meditate on his character. Even when my physical sustenance is absent, God always provides my daily bread through his presence and perfect provision. If I have Jesus, I have everything I need. End quote. What do you say, beloved? What do you say from the testimony of a 25-year-old woman who's Whose life is hours from over, and she knows it. We're going to break momentarily, and most of us will have lunch. She will not. But she says, It's all right. I am finding that Jesus, my Jesus, is coming through for me. It's radical, it's personal it's private, it's intimate, it's not something we can vote, it's not something we can do together. It's between you and Jesus to live like Brooklyn and to live like John the Baptist. But it's that kind of life that causes hell to shake and changes the world. This sermon's for you. It's not for her. It's not for him. It's for me. I'll invite our worship team, our musicians up. They're going to lead us in this theme song. That God would be our vision. We would not see things the way we see things anymore. We would see things the way he sees things. Our hearts would be changed and broken by what breaks his heart and what his heart is all about. If you're a guest here, we invite you to turn in a connect card. We want to send you a little gift and thank you for worshiping with us. Or you can text the number 970-279-3432. You text that number. Let us know you are a guest. Let us know how we can pray for you. Maybe you're making a decision today. I want to live like Brooklyn. I want to live like John the Baptist. I want to bear fruits for repentance. You let us know and we'll come alongside of you. Encourage and bless you in that. You can turn in the card to the ushers as they collect our tithes and offerings. You can turn in your constituency blue cards as well. But I invite you to make this decision with me, this invitation that God would be your vision. It changes everything. It changes you, changes me, and it changes the world. This media was brought to you by Audioverse